everybody, welcome to Encounter. Let's all stand and sing together.
us out to the one who will reign forever, the one who reigns over our sin and our shame. Amen. Let's sing, He shall reign forever. song is a new song that just talks about boasting in Christ and not boasting in anything we've done or anything we haven't done. So this time, just remember that worship isn't about me. It's not about you. It's not about our stylistic preferences. It's about getting our minds set and focused on God and looking at everything that everything that's happening from his perspective. So as you learn this song, sing it out. Not my own I will come 
Good morning and welcome to Encounter. We're so excited that you're worshiping with us today. When you came in this morning, you probably saw our Attend One, Surf One card on your seat. This is a great time to begin filling that out. So as the Connections Director, often people ask me, Paula, what's a good way to get involved here and really start to meet people? And what I tell them is the absolute best way to do that is by serving. It's a great way to meet others and really start to build community. The Bible tells us that we're all members of one body. And in doing so, each member of that body has a unique role to play and a contribution to give. So it doesn't matter if you're serving in kids or greeting at the front door or brewing coffee, you all have a unique contribution to make to help every single person that comes through these doors have a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ. When we talk about serving, sometimes people have questions. And one that we hear a lot is, well, serving seems like it might take some time and I'm really busy. How can I fit serving into my schedule? One of the things that we say around here is that serving could be as little as once a month. But I'd like to encourage you to think about the investment that you're making. And just like with most things, when it comes to serving at your local church, what you put in is what you get out. Take, for example, an opportunity to invest in the young lives and uh, encounter kids. By pouring into some child's life over maybe a year or two on a regular basis, you could have a life-changing impact for them years down the road. Think about what it would mean to catch up with them a decade down the road, and they could look back and they could say it's because of the relationship that you started with them so many years ago that turned them into the young man or the young woman of God that they are today. Another one of the objections that we get or questions that we get is, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how to brew coffee. I don't know how to, uh, I don't know how to mix the sound with all the slides and the knobs on the board. What am I even doing? So what's great is that all of our awesome serving teams are open to men and women of all ages and stages. Even if you don't know how to make the fancy latte art like they do at Starbucks, we would love to have you join our barista team. If the soundboard in the production booth looks a little bit intimidating, no worries. There's a great team of people in place that would love to teach you how to operate it. It's a wonderful thing to be able to learn a new skill that might be different from your career. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a computer programmer, this is an opportunity to serve God passionately and learn something fun in the process. And another question we get a lot is, well, I'm kind of new here and I'm still checking things out. I'm not even really sure what I believe yet. When would be a good time for me to begin serving? The answer to that one is yes, right now, immediately. I've only been worshiping at a counter for about seven years. That's the equivalent of a first grader. And look at all the things that they let me do around here. We like to say here at Encounter that if you've been worshiping here three times, even non-consecutively, now is the time to dig in and start meeting some other people. As Paula said earlier, some of the best relationships that people have here at church are because of the serving teams that they've worked with shoulder to shoulder here on Sunday morning. So go ahead and fill out one of these cards and put it in the offering bucket as it makes its way by or in the boxes as you exit. We can't wait to see the way your God-given talents are going to impact this community. For more information on any of our serving teams, visit us online at encounterchurch.org serving. Awesome. Well, welcome again one more time to Encounter Church. We're so excited, so pumped to have you worshiping with us. And yes, I'm wearing the same shirt as I am in the video, which is a bummer. But that's what happens when you shoot on a Monday. So this morning, we have an extra special opportunity to gather around as a community and to celebrate this incredible act of baptism. And every time we do that, every time we gather around this table, we always ask a few questions to kind of get everybody, all of us, on the same page. And the first question that we ask is when we baptize, 
is, why do we baptize with water? And the answer to that one is pretty simple and straightforward. It's that Jesus Christ instructed us to baptize with water. It's said that just as water washes away dirt from the body, so too does the blood of Jesus wash away all my soul's impurities. In other words, all of my sins. There's nothing mysterious or magical about the water itself, but it's what the water points to. It points to the forgiveness and the love that we all have in Jesus Christ. And the next question that we ask is, is when we baptize, we're going to see Spencer. He's so little, and he's so small, and he's so helpless. So when we baptize, why babies? Why children? And the answer similarly is because in him we see ourselves. At a spiritual level, we see ourselves standing before God with nothing to offer. We're so little, we're so small, and we're so helpless on our own. It's not until God takes the first step in our lives, and we celebrate that here at baptism, that we come to to receive that gift of faith and believe in him, believe in Jesus. And when we baptize, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to consider your own baptism. It's an invitation to consider what this act could look like for you. Whether you get baptized here on stage or in a pool or a lake somewhere, we would love to celebrate this, this act of baptism for you in your life as well. At this time, I want to invite the Zoko family to come forward, and Wes and Caitlin as well as godparents. As we all know, we cannot do this on our own. So it's such a cool, it's such a beautiful picture to see people step up and to say, I'm a part of this tradition as well. I'm a part of this faith family as well. So come on up, Alex. You can in front here. And we got the rest of the family in tow. Oh, man. This is so cool. Yeah, there's a few cables over there. That's all right. Zach won't mind. He's good. <laughs> hey, as we talked about uh, previously and getting to know each other and his families, and as you've been on this stage before, you know that I have a few questions to ask, to, to celebrate all together. In fact, I'm going to ask you to come on over just a little bit more. Yeah, super. Um, awesome. Hey, buddy. Um, the first question that I ask is, do you believe that Spencer is in need of the grace that Jesus has to offer? And do you believe... Hi. Do you believe uh, that, uh, in other words, he's sinful by nature? Uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, conquered our two chief fears, sin and death, once and for all? And do you uh, believe that the Bible is God's infallible word and plan of salvation? And do you promise to do everything that you can as parents so that Spencer grows up always knowing that he's included in God's loving and gracious family? What's your answer? Amen. And people of God, I invite you to respond that same way we do God helping us. When I ask all of you, do you promise to do everything that you can so that Spencer grows up always knowing that he's included in God's loving and gracious family? What's your answer? We do God helping us. Amen. Spencer Zoko, I invite you to be baptized. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God bless you, Spencer Zoko. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for this incredible act. God, thank you for, for, for taking the lens or the camera, if you were, and, and pointed on your grace and, and on your love. And thank you for reaching down here and, and claiming this little one into your family and for speaking the first word, not only into his life, but speaking the first word into all of our lives as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Family and friends, let's welcome Spencer to the family of God and to Encounter Church.
Awesome. And kids, at this time, you are invited. We've got a couple of the awesome teachers there in the back. Just put your hands up, guys. Um, kids, ages first, first grade through fifth grade, you can hang out. Head back to teachers. They'll take you to your classrooms. Parents, of course, you can escort your kids, especially if you're maybe new around here and you want to kind of check out the rooms and meet some of our awesome teachers. That would be sweet as well. Um, ushers, at this time, I want to invite you forward, too, as the kids kind of move out to pass the buckets around. Don't forget about those little cards that we put on the seats ahead of time to get connected uh, here uh, as we move into two worshiping experiences, which it looks like we kind of need because it is, it is crowded. I greet outside on Sunday mornings, and I'm just watching the parking lots, all of them, just fill up. couple of things on that. We've got a ton of lots all around. Everybody, we've gotten permission from everyone to say, absolutely, share a lot. They use it all the time during the week, so it all evens out anyway. So wherever you can find a parking spot, wherever you can find a seat here at church is awesome. The other thing is, and I'm just going to be totally honest and totally real with you, because I believe that if everybody knew the opportunities that God had in store, then you would take them, and you would fill them, and then you would graciously and excitedly accept them. And I'll just say, we had, to, we had to close our kids' ministries, the little ones, uh, kindergarten through, or sorry, birth through kindergarten this morning, um, because they just filled up. I mean, that's a space thing, and that's a, that's a helper, it's a volunteer thing as well. So if you, if you feel like that tug to say, maybe, maybe I should kind of get involved. I always kind of wanted to, but I wasn't quite sure if the need was there, the opportunity is there. I can tell you that there is a kid who couldn't come to church, couldn't come into the kids' programs this morning and hear about Jesus because we didn't have anybody to tell them, which is heartbreaking on the one hand, but also really, really exciting if that's the area that you want to connect with. Okay, so that's entirely aside. We're going to go into a series, back into a series right now called Do Over. And maybe if your family is anything like mine, and chances are because there's so many people here this morning, you're like back into the school rhythm. I mean, you didn't need to see an ad on TV or a magazine or something like that that said back to school, right? Your house might be filled with markers and, and, and little like pencil cases and new clothes and jeans and sweaters and things, like stocking up on everything to get ready to go back to school. Maybe you're back to school, taking classes again for a long time, after being away for a long time, or just heading back to school to college or something like that. It's that season. And if you're anything like my family, if you've got little kids at home especially, you know the routine of writing their names and phone number in like everything right? Because you know if that little blanket or if that little coat or something goes missing, the only shot in the world that you have of getting that back is if their name and your phone number is written on the inside. Otherwise, you could just kiss it goodbye. It's gone forever. I'm not making this up. Just yesterday, yesterday, my wife and I, we left my daughter's brand new backpack at a soccer game after we cleared out of the field. But luckily, we got a call a little while later that said, even before we knew it was gone, <laughs> and said, we have your daughter's backpack. Pick it up on Tuesday. Make arrangements. You're probably going through writing your name, labeling your name or their name in everything that they or everything that you own that you don't want to lose. Chances are some of you are very familiar with one of these. Anybody? Just shout it. Yeah, right. Some of you know exactly what this is because it's, it's your husband or maybe it's your wife's best friend slash mistress, right? One of these like going through and just labeling everything in the house. 
Because it's not just kids' school stuff that has a way of going missing. It's also like that thing you, you strategically placed, you know, tucked away five years ago, and now you want that back, and it's gone. And you're looking at this thing and going, man, if we had one of these things, if we were one of those people that labeled everything in the house, we would know exactly where everything is. We wouldn't ever lose a thing. And if you are one of those people, I've got a ton of work for you. Come on up after the, after the message. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, no, no, no. Label makers are hugely important, hugely significant for quickly and efficiently being able to like size something up or being able to find something, being able to locate something, being able to recognize something. As we're going to talk this morning, it's going to be helpful for us to realize that not everybody has a, has a right to like label everything. Right? You can't just, I can't just go around to your stuff and just start putting my name on it or my phone number, you know, in case it's lost. I don't have the right to do that. So there's this little book, highly recommend, called The Grace of God, talks about kind of this label process. And the author of that book uh, says, you know, it's really, it's like three groups or three people have the right to, to label other people's, th- to label things in the world. And anytime a preacher says, hey, three things. That might be a time, you know, if you're the note-taking person to like maybe write those out because they'll they'll be a little important. We'll come back to them. The first group that has a right to label things is the manufacturer of a thing, the person who made it. So a lot of you, right, you've got your shirt. Maybe on the inside of the shirt, you say there's a label on there. There's the manufacturer. They made it. They made the shirt. They get to write on the shirt, right? A lot of you drove here, right? (laughs) A lot of you drove here in a car with a blue oval on it, or maybe a silver H written on the front, or, or maybe a, a brown uh, bow tie, you know, on the A lot of you came here, driven here, in a Ford, Hyundai, Honda, whatever it is, Chevy, and you drove here in a car with a label on it because the manufacturer made that vehicle. Because they made that vehicle, they get to decide the labels that go on the vehicle and we don't think anything of it. We buy it anyway. Now, once you buy the car, once you purchase it and you become the owner of a car, you get to put one of those, one of those little encounter stickers on it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm seeing those stickers around. I love that. We've got them on the, on the desk in the back if you want to pick one up. Once you buy the car, even though you're not the manufacturer, you get to put that sticker on the back of the car if you're a good driver. Otherwise, it goes on the laptop or the water bottle or something. But because you own it, you also get to decide what labels go on the things. As a manufacturer, it's the owner. And then if you buy something used, something from a previous owner, let's say you're buying maybe a phone or, or, or you're buying a laptop, and the thing is covered with labels, like you can't see what kind of computer it is without opening it because it's almost all labels. Once you purchase a thing, then you also get to decide what labels stay and what labels go. So just to recap the message for this morning, manufacturers, owners, and purchasers get to determine are the only ones that have the right to put a label on a thing. But just because they're the only ones that have a right to put a label on a thing, doesn't mean they're the only ones that will put a label on a thing. And for some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you at one point or another, maybe it was during this back to school season, you received a label. 
You showed up for class, maybe it was fifth grade or sixth grade when kids are the harshest. You showed up for class and you had one of those like, you know, baby teeth came out already, adult teeth came in, your head didn't grow to the size proportionally to your teeth. And so you picked up a label. You picked up a label that wasn't very kind, that you didn't want to have, that someone didn't have the right to put on you, but it stuck nonetheless. And you were so embarrassed over that And you can't seem to shake that, that even later on through high school, even later on after that into adulthood, you can't help but see yourself as that kid that got made fun of. Maybe you showed up to school and for whatever reason, you just grew taller, you grew bigger than the other kids around you. And so while all the other kids are kind of the same, same height, the same air, you're just shot above everybody. And so they started putting all these labels on you. And then years later, even as an adult, even when nobody thinks about it, nobody brings it up anymore, nobody thinks anything of it. You walk around, when you see yourself in the mirror, you only see the label that some kid put on you years ago. And you just can't seem to peel it off. Maybe school wasn't easy for you. Maybe at some point, You stopped doing school before most of your friends did. So you picked up the label of dropout. And then in every conversation, you try to to respond, not to what people are saying. They're not thinking about it anymore. But you're you're trying to respond to to that label you put on yourself of of dropout. And so you're trying to to, to prove to everybody in every conversation that that I'm smarter than I I look or or I'm not a dummy, even though nobody says that you are, but it's like this label that you're trying to shake whether somebody had the right to put that on you or not. So this morning, I want to take a look. I want to tell you a story of a woman who had a couple of labels put on her. Maybe it was fair, maybe it wasn't fair, but that's not the point. I want to tell the story, and by the end, I hope that you know who it is that has the right, the sole right, to put a label on somebody and the difference that that can make in her life, and I think in your life and in mine as well. We're going to go to the book in the Bible of Joshua. The words are going to be on the screen. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. And if I see a blue glow on your face, I'm just going to assume that you're following along on a phone or something as well. So Joshua chapter 2, and it starts out, it starts out at Moses. We did last week. Moses kind of came through Egypt out of slavery, the land of slavery. He moved into the desert roughly 40 years. And now he's coming and the people are coming in to Israel. And they're like knocking on the door. Now it isn't Moses, but his successor that's going to bring the people of Israel into their promised land, into Canaan. This is what happens in verse 2. Then Joshua, there's our guy now, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim is how you pronounce that. Yep, Shittim. Now, <laughs> try to avoid things like that, but this is, <laughs> unfortunately, this is a really significant city at this point in Israel's past because they've been here before. It makes it a perfect installment for the series do-over because, because they got done over once before in Shittim, in the city that they're currently leaving from right now, 
right? So last time they were here, Numbers chapter 25, the story is like two verses long. You can read it sometime. But essentially, it, it amounts to the people of God settled into a place temporarily, especially the army of Israel at this time, and they settle in, and God gives them two warnings. He goes, like, like don't betray your marriage vows with the women that are living there. And he goes, secondly, along with that, don't betray your spiritual commitments, your spiritual vows to me as your, your soul Lord, your soul God, the only one in heaven above or earth below. Don't betray those two vows. And they break both of them the last time they were in Shatim. And so now they're here, and it's just kind of like clues us in. It's like something's not going to go well. Right? They get a do-over. Let's follow along. Let's see what they do with a do-over. Two spies get sent into the city. Go check it out. Side note, God said, this city, this place, this is going to be yours. I've gifted it to you, to Abraham, actually, a long-time ancestors. Um, you're good going there. So it's kind of funny that spies get sent in. Uh, sometimes people kind of put up an objection there and say, well, uh, God, if you promise this thing, I mean, Joshua, all he had to do is pray about it. He didn't need to send spies. Does, does planning, does good planning to spy, spies, does that communicate a certain unfaithfulness or unbelief to God? And the answer is like, absolutely not. No, no, no. God also gave him the means to which he can figure out how to take this city, how to take this place by giving him the spies. So I read earlier this week, I'm going to try not to mess it up here. It's to use the means that God gives you without uh, prayer is just as silly as using, the pr using prayer without the means that God gives you, right? So it's like a both and. God is like, hey, I've given this to you. Send the spies in to figure out just exactly what the plan is. But that's beside the point. They head in. Uh, next uh, slide here. Go, Joshua says, look over the land, he says, and especially Jericho. Uh, Jericho is the first city that you get into after you cross over the Jordan River and you come. It's like the, the welcome city to the land of Canaan. Canaan's kind of a, uh, a stretched out, not really unified nation, but a collection of city-states all in the similar culture, similar geographic area. And Jericho knows that they're the welcome man. Jericho knows they're the first city that an invading army is going to come up on. So there are massive walls in Jericho. On top of that, there's a trained army that lives, that resides inside of the city of Jericho. As if things couldn't get bad enough, Israel has to come over and cross the Jordan River at this time in the season during flood stage, which the water goes up to like ankle deep to a little over waist deep. Which, you know, it's possible, but it takes a while. And if you're attacking a city and you get caught between a heavily fortified city in front of you and a river raging uh, during flood stage behind you, like, it does not bode well. Hence the need for the spies to go in to the city of Jericho to check it out. So, so they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, stayed there. They stayed there. At Rahab's house. From Shittim, where mistakes were made in the past. In case you had any semblance that 
Maybe the Israelites, the, the heroic spies that took up the challenge to go check out and sneak into the city of Jericho. In case you had any idea that they were going to be the heroes of the story, I just want to wreck that tension right now and tell you they're not. In fact, the spies in the story, they don't ever even get named. Maybe it's, maybe it's because they didn't want to be named. Maybe it's because after they left Shittim and snuck into the city, the first thing they did was find a woman named Rahab. Rahab, by the way, is running the house. It's Rahab's house, and we're going to find out. It's Rahab's house. She gets to make decisions about who comes into the house and who stays in the house and who can't come into the house. It's her house. Rahab's name, oddly enough, in the Hebrew language that the Bible is written, and there's a ton of play on words here, so I'm just going to kind of give like a few of them. Rahab's name means something loosely translated like open or wide. That's Rahab. It's Rahab's house. She's in charge. The spies stay there. I, I, I want you to see the spies, the Israelite spies that head in there as like these, these morally suspect really kind of bumbling fool-type characters. No, the story isn't about the spies. No, they don't even get names. It really isn't even about Joshua, but the whole rest of the book is, so he gets mentioned. No, the story that God is telling this morning is about Rahab. <laughs> Oddly enough. We know that it's not about the spies because verse 2, listen, the king of Jericho was told, remember, kings of local city-states, the king of Jericho was told, uh, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. I don't know a ton about spying. Let's get that on the table right now. But I've watched enough James Bond movies to know that the first rule of spying is don't get caught. And in literally verse 2, the king himself comes into the city and says, hey, I happen to know that some spies came here. These guys are terrible at their job. But we continue the story because it gets more intense. Verse 3, so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house. I know they did. Because they've come to spy out, literally translated in the Hebrew word there, literally it's, um, it's they've come to dig out, uh, dig up dirt, you could say, of the whole land. The king's knocking on the door. They know, like this spy, this isn't one of those situations where somebody comes knocking on the door and it's like, oh man, what a, what a tricky moral dilemma this person has. This is not one of those situations, whether to lie or not to lie or what's right. This isn't one of those because everything is tilted in the favor of Rahab. You gotta tell the king where they are. Rahab, you not only wear the label of prostitute, you also wear the label of foreigner, Jericho resident. She grew up in this place by all indications. She served the king for her whole life by every indication. She, she worshipped the gods. Each city-state had its own like, religious system. She worshipped the gods that that city worshipped. In Jericho, it was some kind of like, combination of moon god worship. She was a part of that system. No, the spies are listening to this, and they don't wonder what she's going to say. They know exactly what she's going to say because she's Rahab. And one of the labels that she wears is foreigner. Why would she help out somebody like them? 
Except the woman, verse 4, had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men uh, came to me, but, but I didn't know where they came from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, you know, they, they left. They got out of here. I don't know which way they went, but go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But side note, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she laid out on the floor. There's no reason under heaven for her to do what she did. It doesn't, on one hand, like it doesn't make any sense at all. But we have to give this to her, right? Because she's not the fool in the story. She's not the dummy, the spies that get caught immediately. She's not the dummy in the story. She's smarter than she lets on. I mentioned there's all these like double entendres and there's all like these things in the story that's like super craftily written. So I'm going to share a couple with you. Warning, there's some dad humor, I think, coming up. But remember, the king says that the spies came to, to spy out the land for readability's sake, but actually it says to, to dig up the land, right? To, to dig into this thing. And then she buried them on the roof. I'll try another one. Uh, they, came to, they came to the roof to hide when roofs in the wall where she was was literally the most visible place in the entire city. It's kind of funny. It's, it's irony. One last one. See if this works. They, they came and they hid on top of a roof, but also buried. Like, there's layers to this thing. You had to be there. It was, it was funny. I just want us to see Rahab. Rahab wasn't the fool in the story. Rahab knew a few things. And in fact, I think you could say Rahab knew three things that made a huge world of a difference. And one final thing that we'll wrap up with. But one of the things that she knew in verse 8, now before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know, one of the things that she knows, I know that the Lord has given this land, has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country, they're, they're, they're melting in fear because of you. One of the things that she knows is the tone of the city, and they are terrified of these Israelites that they know are camped just a day's journey away. That's one of the things that she knows. She knows the tone of the city, but she also knows the tone of the city of melting in fear is like that because of the second thing that she knows. She knows not as what happening, but what happened. She also knows that we have, verse 10, heard how the Lord, first thing, dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, these, these two other kings in these other cities, the two kings of the, of the Amorites east of the, on the other side of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, again, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. I know the tone of the city that we are all terrified of you because of that. I know what your God has done. I know about the Red Sea incident. And chances are, if she knows about the parting of the Red Seas, there's a good chance that she also heard one or two or ten things about plagues that came to Egypt. 
the gnats and the hail and the darkness and the river turning to blood and the flies and the frogs, and I'm going to forget a couple of them. But she's heard about all of these stories. She knows the power of it. She knows what happens when God flexes his muscles. She knows the power of God, what he's capable of, and, and, by the end of the story, I think she's also going to demonstrate that she knows about that 10th plague. She knows about the one that sealed the deal. She knows about the one where God said to the Israeli people, his people, she knows about the one where God said to the people, take a lamb, a good lamb, and sacrifice it, and take the blood of that lamb, and, and paint your door with it so it's red, scarlet. And when I send my angel of death through the city that night, I will pass over all of the doors, the windows, the gates with the red mark stained on the front. I think Rahab knows this. She knows the tone of the city. She knows what God has done. And all of that culminates to something unimaginable. She knows the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. The name that she uses for Lord, your God, isn't a generic, she knows who God is. She's heard of him before. No, no, no. It's more specific than just knowing about somebody. The name that she uses for Lord God, it, it's Lord as in a, as in a personal uh, noun. I'm not a pastor. I'm not dad. I'm not a husband. My, my name is Dirk. Right? It's something that a few people on the, the global scheme of things really, really know about me. Right? God has given his personal name to his people. You don't simply call me Lord or call me God. You call me, you call me Yahweh. You, you call me by my name because that's how intimate we are as a people. That's, that's what kind of relationship that we have. And now, most importantly, more than the tone of the city or what God has done, she knows that the Lord God is God. And she might have no other reason for, for hiding these spies under heaven, but she knows who's in heaven reigning above everybody in heaven above and on earth below. As she says, she knows that God. And against all odds, she hides them. And, and I just, I like... I cannot imagine what it would have taken for her to overcome the, the, the labels that she had, the labels that she would have taken with her into this new community when she switches sides. They, they don't go away. She's still going to be known as Rahab. Oh, yeah. And also, she ran the house that Rahab. The two labels that she had, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the foreigner. I want to make a comment on the, on the second one first, Rahab the, the foreigner. Throughout much of the Bible, God related to his people by choosing a line of people, descendants of one person, Abraham. 
and, and kind of throughout the story of Genesis, carved those people out and, and grew them and grew them. And they were, they were called his, God's people. And somewhere along the line, like a mistake starting to get made that said that the only people of God were the people that belonged to that line, the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham type people. But it seems like in this story, one of the ways that God is asserting his right, his divine right, to label a people, he wants to say, listen, you do not become my people. You are not part of my people by birth, but by belief. And so one of the things that God points out to his people, all people, no matter geographically where they're born or what they look like, is, is claiming and, and is reaching over and grabbing somebody like Rahab, who's born and raised in Jericho. She's part of the enemy, the Canaanites, and saying, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter what you look like. You are part of my people. And we see God almost as if he's going out of his way to deliberately show how significant it is to claim somebody like Rahab into his family. The reason why I think that may be somewhat important this morning is because in a national conversation, people are talking about what it means to love or hate other groups of people. And it's determined on where they are. It's also determined on what they look like, what race they are. And, and so we call it today something grotesque and evil. What it is, it's, it's racism. But, but biblically, I also want to give you another, some more language to talk about that because of the, the Rahab story here. We, we see in the Rahab story here, not just the biblical word of racism and breaking that down, but no, no, no. We see God take the first step towards reaching and like claiming someone else and bring them into his family and saying, no, no, this is how I want it to be. And he does this again and again all throughout, not just the New Testament where it's really clear, but in the Old Testament as well, which is somewhat surprising. Jonah is called to go serve the Assyrians, the, the, uh, the people of Nineveh. Uh, it, it's, it's throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, fun little story here, is Paul, or, uh, yeah, Paul, he's doing his missionary journey. He, by the way, wrote about half of the books of the New Testament, but never mind. He goes into these different cities and he's starting different churches, something I think is kind of cool, but I'm biased. He goes into one of them, the church, and he goes into Athens and he finds a bunch of philosophers whom I imagine are sitting around in beanbags, kind of just shooting the breeze. And and he starts engaging them in a conversation about what their beliefs are, about what their thoughts are. And one of the things that he finds out, because he kind of knows these people already, and also maybe some things of what they say, is they believe because they're Greeks, and not only that, because they're philosopher Greeks, that they are far and away above and beyond everybody else. And so he's engaging these people, and he uncovers that they actually had a word to, to call everybody who wasn't of Greek descent. The word was barbaros in Greek, literally barbarian. They called everybody who wasn't like them a barbarian. And so we see, we see Paul in Acts 17 go to the philosophers in Athens, their home territory, and goes, did you know? Did you know that we are all descendants of one person? He doesn't go to Abraham. No, he goes to Adam. 
He goes, we're all descendants of Adam. And because of that, we all bear the same image of God that he put on Adam. He put on all of us. No matter where we are and no matter what we look like, we aren't just bearing the image of God. In fact, we are the image of God, God's representative here on earth, no matter what label we wear. You could call it racism. You could also call it idolatry. Because to to go against that is to simply say back to God, I know better than you. And God brings Rahab into the family. But she had another label too. It's hard to shake that label of harlot, or prostitute. In fact, the early Jewish writers, the rabbis who wrote about this story, wrote about this story uh, in something called the Talmud. Uh, it's a collection of early Jewish writings. It's, it's significant because it's almost of the spiritual significance in their tradition as the Bible is in ours. I mean, it's it's not quite, but it's like really high up there. And what's interesting about that is when, they're, when they talk about the story of Rahab, they clean it up. Isn't that interesting? They, they, they whitewash it. They sanitize it a little bit more. They make it a little more presentable to talk about it in church. Instead of calling her a harlot, instead of calling her uh, a prostitute, somebody who runs the house, in fact, no, they call her an innkeeper because they want to preserve the integrity of the story because God couldn't, God couldn't use someone bearing the label like she had. But when the New Testament writers... In Hebrews 11 and in James 2, 25, when the New Testament writers tell the story of God, they don't hold anything back and they don't polish anything up. They don't whitewash or sanitize anything away. When the writers of Hebrews and James talk about the story of Rahab, Hebrews says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab believed and it was credited to her as righteousness. Rahab. I just think that's important because you have a label. We've all got a label. Every last one of us. And you might want to hide your label. You might want to run away from your label. You might want to forget that that label ever existed or you ever wore that label because God couldn't use a label like yours or a person like you But God is clear throughout the story that he tells in Joshua and Hebrews and in James, coming back to it time and time again, though you might want to forget about it, God has something bigger in mind. He wants to redeem it. You might want to brush something away and totally forget about it, but God just may come with you and gather around that label and say, no, 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 we're not going to deny it. We're not going to run from it. We're going to do something incredible with it. And the story that God tells could be life-changing and not just yours either. As the three of them now in the story, as they get together, and she says, I've switched sides. My life is in danger in this place. If anybody finds out, give me a sign that I'll be taken care of. And what do they hand her? They hand her a red 
scarlet robe. Almost as if she's heard this story before. And they say when we revisit and when the walls come tumbling down, as long as we see this hanging out of your window, on your front door, on your wall, as long as we see that red cord hanging down, we will know that you are covered. And so verse 21, she sent them away and they departed and she tied that scarlet cord in the window. Because friends, from that moment on, she may have still carried that label of prostitute or of foreigner. But from that moment on, God put a bigger label on her. God put a big label on her that said Rahab, the redeemed And God put a label on her as she moved into the Israelite camp and as she had babies and they had babies and they had babies. And as Jesus is unfolding his story in Matthew chapter one, Matthew goes out of his way to say, did you know Rahab had another label? She wasn't just Rahab the prostitute. She wasn't just Rahab the the foreigner. She wasn't even just Rahab the redeemed. She was Rahab the mother of kings. Rahab the mother of David. Rahab the grandmother of Jesus. That's the power of a redeemed label that God gives her. I come back to that first part of this message today. Who has the right to put a label on your back? It wasn't Johnny from second grade. It wasn't your husband who left you. It wasn't your boss who told you that you're no good. The only one that has a right to put a label on you is the one who made you, the one who owns you, and the one who purchased you back. And the label that God is putting on you today is what Rahab knows. She knows that the God who made me gave me a label and he said, I am the image, the representative of God here on earth. She knows that the one who reigns over her from, from heaven above and earth beneath gave a label on her that called her child of God. She knows that the one who purchased her back, not with a scarlet cord, not with the blood of the lamb, but with the blood of God's risen son, Jesus Christ, labels her as saved, as redeemed. As she and we you belong in that family belong to that God he made us he rules over us and he assigned us our infinite value by putting our cost at nothing less than his one and only begotten son Jesus Christ imagine that Let's stand up and let's pray to that God together this morning. Gracious God, Lord, easier said than done. Lord, there's moments like this when, when we believe, or at least we want to believe that, that we're your child, 
that we're your image, that we're redeemed and saved and valued eternally. But God, when we go out of these doors today, people might talk about us or we might see ourselves in the mirror and our thoughts will drift again from from thoughts of you to thoughts about us and the labels that we wear. God, this morning and for this week, may we see ourselves and Lord, may we see each other as you see us. In your name we pray, amen.
promise. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. People of God, go forward with this from Joshua 2, 21. Rahab, Rahab sent them away, the spies, they departed, and she tied that scarlet cord in the window. People, when you go forward this week, may you see nothing but the scarlet blood of Jesus claiming you as his children, as the redeemed people of God you are. Go in peace. We'll see you next week. So hard to fall so far